Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and today looking at an overview of faith and God's means of grace. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bessel, as we get going here today, as we progress in this series, we're going through the catechisms. We've had a few points here where we've interjected some wonderful teachings that you give in your catechesis, the separation syndrome. Once again, we still have some of those wonderful bookmarks available that uh, one of your parishioners made. So please contact us here at KFO at KFO.org for email. And we'd love to hear from you about this series and what you think. But also, if you'd like one of those separation syndrome bookmarks, we'd love to send them to you. We do have a few of those left. Uh, But we've interjected some of these other things in here. And this is one of those episodes where we're progressing through the small catechism and the large catechism as it goes forward. Of course, the catechism begins with the Ten Commandments, and we've covered that. Well, we set up getting into the Ten Commandments, and then we covered the Ten Commandments, and then we talked about the connection between the commandments and the creed, and then we covered the creed, and then before getting into the Lord's Prayer, seeing that connect in there as well, and we've just finished covering the Lord's Prayer. And so now, as we go forward in the Catechism, especially the small Catechism, we will notice that there's a definite shift, you know, Ten Commandments. Creed, not an exact quote of Scripture, as we see the Ten Commandments come directly from Scripture. Of course, Luther adds his explanations, but then we have the Creed, which summarizes our Christian faith so well, and then the Lord's Prayer, once again, directly from Scripture, and then that teaching that is wonderfully included in the Catechism for us. But now as we get into kind of another section, if you will, of the Catechisms, we get into baptism here next. And then we have Confession Absolution and the Lord's Supper. And those very clearly taught in Scripture, but it's a very different sort of thing, if you will, than what we've covered so far as we've gone through the catechisms. And so we have another one of these episodes where we've got to see that connection there. And so that's what Pastor Bessel, our catechist for this series, is going to give us here today, is talk about, as I gave in the setup there, kind of an overview of what is faith and God's means of grace to us, and how do we see this connection of where the catechism is going now and where we're going to go in this series from where we've been. So, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us away there. Sure, Sean. You're right that not only is there a shift in how it sort of feels that we're now moving through the catechism, but that shift in feeling is intentional in Luther's own commentary, that Luther in the large catechism has a real interesting 
passage here at the very beginning of part four of the large catechism, which is actually the part on baptism. And if you, as you laid out rightly for us here, the layout of the small catechism, you can get the sense of how now we're supposed to be moving into baptism. And yet it's at this very specific beginning of the section on baptism that Luther makes a much more overarching, broad commentary on the relationship between the first half of the catechism and the second half of the catechism. And he says this in the large catechism, he says, we have now finished the three chief parts of common Christian doctrine. Besides these, we have yet to speak of our two sacraments instituted by Christ. Every Christian also ought to have at least an ordinary brief instruction about the sacraments because without them, he cannot be a Christian. That's a strong statement. Uh, and that statement, if we take a moment just to unpack that, has a couple of really key points in here. The first key point is that Luther admits we have finished not only the first half of the catechism, but we have really finished the three chief parts of what is the totality of the common Christian doctrine. In other words, I think a way to say this is that in the first three chief parts, you have a total view of what the Word of God teaches. Or another way to say it is in the first three chief parts, you have a total overview of what the capital F faith is, the doctrine, the handing down of that faith. And Luther is the one that points that out in the large catechism. And he says, here's what we've covered in the first three chief parts, the totality of what it means to be a Christian, right? You have the law, you have the gospel, you have law and gospel lived out in daily life. That's what we've covered in Ten Commandments, Creed, and Lord's Prayer. Everything in there is the totality of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is really quite simple. The law shows us our sin. The gospel shows us our Savior. And law and gospel together carry us through the daily Christian life. And that's really what Luther says in this first sentence. But now he points out something else where he says, besides this, we have yet to speak of our two sacraments, and we'll leave the number two out of it just for today's discussion. But besides this, we have yet to speak of our sacraments instituted by Christ. Every Christian also ought to have at least an ordinary brief instruction about the sacraments, Luther says, because without them, he cannot be a Christian. That's a really remarkable comment because what Luther is saying is that, yes, you have the doctrine, but you need the sacraments of God. Now, this is certainly a line drawn in the sand between the Lutheran view of faith and the Lutheran view of God's grace and the word. It's a line in the sand between the Lutheran view and between the Protestant view for sure. But also, I think you can make the argument that it's even a line in the sand between the Lutheran view and the Catholic view. That here now we start to see in Luther's own commentary a distinction between the confessional Lutheran understanding of the relationship between the word and the sacraments, a distinction between the Lutheran understanding of that and so many of these other understandings that have been dubbed Christian over the years. And so we are right to say, for example, okay, the first three chief parts, we are right to say that all Christians would agree that the word is the power of God unto salvation. All Christians basically agree in that sentiment. And so some would say, well, then uh, what comes after these three chief parts? What comes after it is now, how does man respond? Now the word must be believed. And a lot of emphasis is put on this idea of faith, believing, quote unquote, accepting, receiving, quote unquote, making a decision. All of these different adjectives or descriptions of how faith works is really where a lot of people go because they say, well, if this is what we've, you know, if we've covered the entirety of the word, what's left? What's left is 
man's choosing, man's decision, man's accepting of Jesus and his doctrine into my heart. Very American evangelical, Protestant, revivalistic notions. And so a lot of people would agree that, okay, what's next is the question over how is the word to be received? And so a lot of people would say, well, the word must be believed, which depending on how you define that phrase could be a correct understanding or could be an incorrect understanding. When you say the word must be believed, well, must in terms of faith having anything to do with salvation, that much is true, Then that yes, the word is to be believed. The scriptures certainly talk about the idea of salvation, including the element of faith. But if I were to say the phrase, the word must be believed, and by that I would mean that man has an obligation to accept Jesus, that now it's up to man's choosing, well, then that phrase is not so well-worded or so well-chosen. There's a difference between the idea of accepting and rejecting, right? And part of the American Christian mindset, I think, is this notion of saying, if man can reject the word of God, then by definition, he has to be able to accept the word of God. And therefore, when we talk about the idea of the word being believed, then the next part of the equation, once we're done with law, gospel, and law and gospel in daily Christian life, once we're done with Ten Commandments, Creed, and Lord's Prayer, is that man is now at this threshold of either accepting or rejecting the word. Well, that's not exactly true. And even logically, that relationship between accepting and rejecting isn't even a logical consistency. Uh, for example, if I talk about the idea of a gift, by definition, a gift cannot be accepted. Otherwise, it's not a gift. It's just an invitation. If I make a gift for someone, it's as good as already having been given to the person. A person can reject my gift, but I've already given them the gift in my own heart by the fact that I have made the gift for them, provided the gift for them, even if they reject it. So they do not have to accept my gift for it to be a gift. And I understand this sounds more like a, a philosophical argument, but I think it's an important one to help people understand that we don't have to fall into this trap of saying, if I can reject the faith, then I also have the responsibility of quote unquote accepting it. And that's not true when it comes to the idea of a gift. A gift is a gift, whether it's rejected or not. When parents give a gift at Christmas, that gift is given to the child out of the love of the parent's heart even before the child, quote unquote, chooses to unwrap it. The gift is already the child's. If the child rejects the gift and lets it sit there forever, the gift has still been given. The child simply rejects it. There is no such thing as saying, you cannot give me a gift until I accept to receive the gift. No, the gift has been given. And so if you understand that point, it makes it very easy to see that it's really just a logical wordplay when people say, no, no, if you can reject the things of God, then you also have to be able to accept them. And therefore, supposedly we're now at this place of making this great decision of either accepting or rejecting the word that we have heard in the first three chief parts. That's not actually true. But this does lead to an honest question. And that honest question is, well, why haven't we talked about the word faith yet? Because that's really what people are trying to get to. They're really trying to get to the idea of saying, well, there has to be this element of faith that either, quote, accepts or, quote, rejects the word of God. And so really what they're trying to wrestle with and trying to articulate is, what is the role of this word faith in all of this? 
And amazingly, after going through half of the catechism and the half that really has a lot to do with the doctrine of Christ, nevertheless, we haven't really spent that much time actually talking about this word faith. And so it's an honest question for people to say, well, what role does faith have in salvation? How does one understand faith? Is faith something that begins with man or is faith something that begins with God? All of these questions need to be answered. And to understand how these two halves of section one of the catechism, remember the six chief parts are section one. And so the two halves, chief parts one through three versus chief parts four through six, how do these two halves of section one tie together? It really ties together with the understanding of what is the role of faith? Where does faith come from? How does God involve faith in this salvation equation, if you want to use that term. And so now is a perfect spot in our series to answer some of these questions on this word faith. I do want to start by making this point, and I think it's an important point for people to really meditate on and wrestle with, that we haven't yet really talked about the word faith in detail is perhaps a very good reminder that the Lutheran view of faith is not the same as the American evangelicals view or the Protestants' view, or even the Catholics' view of faith. All of those which, honestly, I think what you could generically say without uh, being uh, incorrect about any of those views, is that Roman Catholic and, and American Evangelical and Protestant all put a lot of effort or a lot of weight and merit on this term faith. After all, they like to remind us that one of the great Reformation themes is We are saved by faith alone. And that's certainly true. That is one of the Reformation themes. But let the hearer remember that in fuller context, the phrase is not just saved by faith alone. That's sort of a shorthand of the Reformation motto. Rather, the phrase is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, or you might even say on account of Christ's righteousness alone. And that shorthand version, saved by faith alone, is almost singularly used when discussing the difference between faith and works, right? Where the uh, confessions say and the scriptures say that we hold that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And there you see a very specific distinction. Faith is not about what man is trying to perform, right? The works of the law. It's not about man's merit. It's not about man's righteousness but rather faith clings to Christ's merit, Christ's righteousness, what Christ has already performed. But where the Protestants have not been careful over 500 years, and where the American evangelicals, I would argue, are not careful with this, is that they actually turn faith into a form of a merit carrier in the same way that the Roman Catholics, it could be argued, are taught to view good works as a form of a merit carrier. And so, In some ways, sadly, I think many well-intended folks in Protestant churches and American evangelical churches, they were so concerned about Roman Catholic doctrine with good reason that they tried so hard to run away from Roman Catholic doctrine that they actually ran in a big circle and unfortunately and accidentally ran in the back door and basically assigned to the word faith the same merit or righteousness that Roman Catholics assigned to the word good works, or to the phrase good works. And so a lot of people put more emphasis on faith than they do on grace. You know, how often has the hearer been addressed 
with this type of a question. Well, how do you know that you are saved? Now, if the conversation was going to be between a Roman Catholic and a Lutheran, someone might say, oh, well, that's, that's an easy distinction. The Roman Catholic says, well, I do good works. And the Lutheran says, oh, well, Jesus died on the cross. Well, that might be an oversimplification, and, and my apologies to good Roman Catholics out there who are wrestling with this honestly, certainly an oversimplification there. But for the sake of the discussion, I would argue that in a very similar oversimplification, you do tend to hear that among the Protestant or American evangelical view, there's an understanding of saying, I know I'm saved because I've made my decision for Jesus or because I accepted Jesus into my heart. Whereas the Lutheran would say, well, no, I know I'm saved because Christ died for me and he applied that atoning death to me in baptism and he has raised me in the Christian faith in his gifts. But it's very common among Protestants and American evangelicals to sort of have this merit-based version of talking about faith. Uh, I one time had a um, very nice gentleman come to the door from a Baptist church in the area and he wanted to know when you know, when I was saved. And I said, well, I was saved 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross for me. And he says, no, 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 no. When did this become a salvation for you? And I say, well, when Christ adopted me as a child of God in holy baptism and applied to me the benefits of the cross, said, no, 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 no. And for him, you know, the, the answer he was looking for was, what is faith's decision? What is faith's role in all of this? And so you can see, even before we get into a deep discussion on this, you can see where there is definitely a difference in opinion between the American evangelical slash Protestant sort of American Christian view of the word faith versus the Lutheran understanding of the word faith. What is faith's role in salvation? What is faith's role in, quote unquote, receiving the word of God? Faith does not save by clinging to its own worthiness. And that's probably the single most important point for any Lutheran here or non-Lutheran here to really wrestle with in terms of this word faith. Faith does not save by clinging to itself. I am not saved by my act of believing, but rather I am saved by Christ and faith can hold on to him. Faith saves only in the sense that it trusts the promise of salvation. It could trust the totally wrong thing and trust it very genuinely, and it's not going to save because faith doesn't save by its own merit or by its own worthiness before God. It saves based on the object of the faith. So it's not the size of my faith that matters. It's not the strength of my faith that matters. It's not the willpower of my faith that matters. What matters is the object of my faith. God being gracious to me because of the merit of Christ Jesus. And this distinction is often noticeable, for example, in a funeral sermon. Think to some of those funerals, maybe a non-Lutheran funeral that some of our hearers might go to at times for friends or loved ones. And perhaps a lot of emphasis is put on the person's good life or put on their good faith, put on their piety, their zealous love of God. Whereas in a Lutheran sermon, the sermon is still on the individual's faith without even mentioning the word because the sermon points everyone to Christ and says, here is the hope of the deceased, that when this one died and his body is now being laid in the grave, it is not being laid in the grave in vain because Christ is certain and true. Now, that's still a sermon about the individual's faith in a sense, 
Because what matters is not the strength of the individual's faith. What matters is the object. And that Christ as that object, that faith is not in vain. As St. Paul, remember, talking about the resurrection of Christ says, if our hope for Christ is only in this life, then we are of all men to be most pitied. We fall a lie. But in fact, Christ is raised from the dead. There's the certain hope of our salvation, and there's the certain hope of our faith. So faith can cling to Christ, and that is truly then faith's role, which is why we could go the whole first three chief parts and never really talk about the word faith because faith simply rejoices in the good news it is being taught in the totality of those three chief parts. I don't have to sit here and exhort the hearer or compel the hearer or even rebuke the hearer and say, boy, you better be doing your part in believing this stuff. I mean, that's not what the, if the good news is worthy of being cherished, then it's just going to be cherished. It's just going to be loved and we're just going to rejoice in it. Because this is the good news that I get to receive. This is the good news that is for me. And so faith, in a sense, passively receives that objective good news that is there and then actively rejoices in that and lives its life dependent upon that and clings to it. And so I don't have to beat the hero over the head and say, you better have a good faith. Rather, I can simply speak of the law, the gospel and daily life lived out in law and gospel, and the believing heart says, yes, this is so. Or, as we said at the end of the Lord's Prayer, amen. This is most certainly true, as we said throughout the first half of these chief parts. Right? How oftentimes did we, how many times do we hear Luther say that? This is most certainly true. That's the answer that faith says, isn't it? Faith responds by saying, yes, I believe this to be true. But I don't have to then focus on what is faith all about. Faith simply rejoices in this good news. So on the one hand, the best way to teach on faith might mean never even having to say the word. Preach and teach on the object of faith, and faith will cling to that object. On the other hand, it is true that the word faith is an important part of our theological vocabulary. And it's equally true that that word has been misused in various forms throughout the centuries, namely by faith hoping in itself. There's a word out there that might best be used to help people understand the difference between Christianity and faith in faith. And that word is fideism, right? Do you believe in faith itself or do you believe in the object of faith? Do you hold on to faith for the sake of faith or do you hold on to faith for the sake of Christ's certain and true promises? And so we don't want faith in faith. Rather, we want faith in Christ, and this is what the law and the gospel point us to, is faith in Christ, not faith in my own ability to believe whatever content I have an ability to believe. So it's helpful to at least discuss this word faith and how the Christian should properly understand it. For example, I've already mentioned this just in passing, what about the difference between the word faith with a capital F and the word faith with a lowercase f? Now, in the distinction I'm about to make, it's not necessarily a distinction that you're going to find in our confessions or in the scriptures themselves, but I think it's, again, sort of a description in the logic of vocabulary to help the hearer understand. There is a difference between talking about the faith, capital F faith, versus my own personal lowercase f faith. The faith is the objective truth of doctrine. 
that pure golden ring, Luther calls it, that pure golden ring of doctrine that Christ gives to his church, that faith that, as the apostle says, is the faith that has been handed down to the saints, that sort of outside of you reality that is true whether or not your heart believes it, right? Christ is risen from the dead whether or not you believe it. The one who says, no, I reject that, doesn't all of a sudden make it not true. It's still true, just that that individual loses out on the benefit of believing that this happened for that individual. But the capital F faith is the objective truth that has been handed down. It's a truth outside of and larger than any individual Christian. And so again, I think probably the best phrase from scripture to think of is that one from the little epistle of Jude, the faith once delivered to the saints. The lowercase f faith, on the other hand, might be called the heart's joy, right? The heart's, the individual Christian and the joy of that individual Christian in saying, this great and amazing truth is for me. That not only is it true that Christ became man, not only is it true that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, yes, that's all true, but faith says, this happened for my benefit. Right? That's the lowercase f faith that says, yes, I can acknowledge, if you will, the historical reality of all of this, but that's not the same as me saying, wow, this benefits me. I'm going to heaven because of what Christ has done. I'm the heir of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting because of what Christ has done. I can listen to all of this that Christ accomplished in history. And I can know that he is making sure that it comes from the cross to me 2,000 years later, and it benefits me unto eternal life. That's the lowercase f faith that rejoices in and sort of leaps, as John leapt in the womb, that leaps at the capital F faith doctrine, that truth that is handed down. And so those two distinctions might be helpful as we get into the second half of the hour and talking about, okay, well then, how do we get from the word and the great capital F faith, how do we get that to the hearer's heart so that his lowercase F faith leaps and rejoices? How does that happen? Does it happen through these personal decisions for Jesus? Does it happen just because Christ has chosen to die for some and not for others? Does it happen by good works, by love inducing and creating faith? Or does it happen because God in his infinite wisdom has established these means of grace by which that grace creates faith in the heart. And that's what we get into in the second half of the catechism. And that is indeed where we will go ahead and take a break here then. And on the other side of the break, we'll pick up with exactly what you just said there, Pastor Bestel, of how do we receive this faith? How does it become ours? How do we receive possession of it that it may form and shape our life? So that's what we'll pick up on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you are listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the Word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you.
and welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our Catechized Life series with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And Pastor Bestel, in the first half of the show here today, you were setting up for us what faith is, and you brought out that, you know, thus far in the catechism, we've talked about faith, we've alluded to it, we've hinted to it, pointed to it. Of course, it's there when we go through the creed that is the object of our faith, as you talked about there in the first half of the show, centered in on that second article of the creed, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And that is certainly what we highlighted when we went through the creed. And as we set up just before break, we'd like to talk about how we receive that faith then. So go ahead and pick up there. And you were talking about faith. And I guess one other thing to cover too is where does faith come from? And then how do we receive it? And that's what we'll go ahead and cover here. So take us away, Pastor Bessel. That word choice that you use there is a great one to show the distinction between the scriptural view versus what so many American Christians have been taught. And that is this word receive. If faith comes from inside of me, then I'm not receiving it, but rather I'm producing it. But faith doesn't come from inside of me. It comes from outside of me. One of the great chapters, I think, in the scriptures that really is sort of the aha moment for a lot of Christians who struggle with this word faith is that chapter that is so well-loved by the American Christian community that is even referred to as being called the faith chapter. And it's that chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about all of the heroes of the past, right? All of the patriarchs. And we even talked about this, I think, at one point we were talking about don't read the Old Testament to be examples of great faith because you get through, you know, these patriarchs like Abraham, David, Solomon, and you see where these people are sadly sinning left and right and doing things that do not show great faith. And yet you have this chapter in Hebrews 11 that shows you know, it's referred to as the, the faith chapter because it says, you know, by faith they lived, by faith they carried on, by faith. And it's all this by faith. And it sort of harkens to that phrase, salvation by faith. And it's very easy for someone to get caught up and say, oh, well, look, they are lauded for their faith. They are saved in a sense by their faith. Except think of how that chapter actually ends. It actually ends in what we call chapter 12. The whole thought finally finishes out in the first verses of chapter 12, where it says that all look to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Notice that he is the author and he is the perfecter of it. Now, the question is, in chapter 12 there, is that referring to what I called the capital F faith, the doctrine, the truth, or is it referring to the lowercase f faith of the individual heart? I think you could almost answer that as a yes, as a both, that Christ is the author and perfecter of the doctrine, right? That the triune God is certainly the one who authored this message of salvation, and Christ is the one who brought it to completion. It is finished, he cried from the cross, and so he is the author and perfecter of the saving doctrine, but he is also the author and perfecter of the individual heart's faith that he, by the work of his Holy Spirit, creates and sustains faith in the heart, and he brings it to its completion on the day of resurrection, the day of the life of the world to come, that he perfects it in that sense. He even brings it, you know, he safeguards it at death's day when death has spoken its worst, and the old Adam is laid in the grave, the body is laid in the grave, and the new Adam is already safe with Christ. And so Christ being the author and perfecter of faith 
means both that Christ is the author and perfecter of the saving doctrine, but he's also the author and perfecter of the individual heart's faith. And so that's a very comforting thing for us to keep in mind that I don't have to spend my whole life wondering whether or not my heart is strong enough, my faith is strong enough, whether or not it's pleasing enough to God. I simply spend my life focused on who is the object of my faith and where Christ is the object of my faith, where my hope is in Christ Jesus and nothing less and nothing other than Christ Jesus then I have every reason to live in faith, to die in faith, knowing that I will be raised on account of that faith and that faith in Christ Jesus. And so if faith does not flow up from within, but rather faith comes from outside of me, and remember, that's not just a passage that is spoken there in Hebrews 11 and 12, but think of some of those great passages in scriptures like Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Well, think about that. Hearing is specifically a sense of receiving that which is outside of you. I don't listen for what is inside of me. I listen for what comes from outside of me. And hearing takes in and internalizes, if you will, what comes from outside. The gospel comes from outside. It is objectively true whether I believe it or not. And yet that word is spoken into my ears and right into my heart so that faith rejoices in that promise of the gospel. In the same way, you also have Ephesians chapter 2 is another great one. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, well, what is the antecedent for the word this? Some people would argue it's the word faith. Some people would, it would argue that it's the word grace. But that, it doesn't really make sense to say, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this grace is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. By definition, grace is a gift of God. But rather, there Paul is explaining to us that faith, that the salvation that is ours by grace through faith, that is a gift of God. Faith is not my work. It's not something that I produce from within, but rather it is a gift of God so that no one can boast in his own faith, but I can boast in Christ, the object of my faith. And therefore, as we rejoice and take great comfort that faith comes from outside of us, that faith is therefore received and internalized by the heart and by the ears and into the heart, then you can say, okay, well, then this starts to answer the question, how does faith and all of its benefits come to me? And that's really why we go from the first three chief parts, the object of faith, to the second three chief parts, the means by which faith is created and sustained. And this is really what Luther meant when he said in that opening section in the large catechism's discussion on baptism, where he said that apart from the sacraments, one cannot be a Christian. You go, whoa, again, that sounds almost legalistic to the one who thinks of sacraments as being an ordinance, a command. But if the sacraments are the channels and instruments and tools by which God works to create and sustain faith in the heart, then we start to understand what Luther means when he says you cannot be a Christian apart from the word and the sacraments. He doesn't mean you're not allowed to be a Christian. He means you're not going to be able to be a Christian because faith doesn't come from within and faith can't just create itself, but rather the truth and the message of that truth and the bestowal of that truth upon the sinner. That's what creates faith, right? I guess you could almost ask this question, what comes first, 
one trusting in someone else or that someone else first proving himself trustworthy? Or another way to say it, does faith come before the object of faith proves himself worthy to be trusted? And this is the important distinction between the scriptural understanding versus the American Christian understanding. The American Christian understanding says, Jesus wants you to believe in him. He's ready to save you. He just wants you to believe in him. He just wants you to have faith. But that implies that faith almost needs to come before Christ is, in a sense, able to show himself trustworthy. Rather than saying, believe on Jesus Christ because look what he has done for you. Look what he has already accomplished for you. Hear this great message of salvation. Know that it is for you too, right? This is for all who have ears to hear, Jesus says. And therefore, if faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, what Christ has accomplished, what Christ has promised, then the individual doesn't have to worry about how well he's doing in believing. He rather simply has to say, do I believe in Jesus? Is that my object of my affection, that I believe in Jesus and not in Allah or not as the atheist believes in basically myself uh, or in all the gods of Hinduism out there? No, I believe in Jesus. There's the author and perfecter. There's the object of my faith. So if the word, as we think of the layout of the catechism, if the word was the first three chief parts, then its work in other forms is the second three chief parts. How does this word create and sustain faith in my heart, right? This is why Lutherans are so fond of this phrase, the word and the sacraments, or the means of grace. And this is an important relationship because, again, so many Christians agree with this idea that they agree in, quote, the word of God. But again, what is the word of God? What is its relationship to faith and how faith comes? We talk about the word in multiple forms, don't we? The word, if you're looking through the chronology of time, the word before Christ became flesh, the word was spoken, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, and then the word was put into its full written form. Certainly the the Old Testament word was written before the coming of the Christ, but in its fullest form, the entirety of the scriptures, the written word flows from the word made flesh. And so whether you're speaking of the spoken word, the proclamation of the word, whether you're speaking of the word made flesh, whether you're speaking of the word written, all of the content of it, all of the focus of it, all of it is Christ, right? Certainly we don't mean to say that the Bible is Christ, but the Bible is the word that gives us Christ Jesus. So you've got the proclamation of Christ, he who hears you hears me, Jesus says to his apostles. You've got the word made flesh in Christ Jesus. You've got the word written on pages, as St. John says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice again there, John doesn't say, these things are written that you may believe and put all of the emphasis on one's strength in believing. It's not about one's emphasis and the strength in believing. It's about the emphasis on the object, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Because apart from his name, there is no life. But in his name, with that object for faith to hold on to, then faith is not in vain. And therefore, the word being all things Christ, that then helps us see where all things Christ, the first three chief parts, now need these means of grace 
to say, okay, how do we understand how one becomes a Christian? Again, Luther's comment at the beginning of the fourth section there. Without these things, one cannot be a Christian. Now we're getting into this discussion and this understanding of, okay, well, how does the cross work so that that which happened 2,000 years ago actually benefits me today? Or, as some people like to ask the question, well, okay, if Jesus died, if the word says that Jesus died for everyone, then how come not all people are saved? And if you look at the different church teachings and the different church bodies, there are different answers to this, aren't there? The Roman Catholics say, well, yeah, Christ died, or the Roman Catholic teaching, the Roman Catholic doctrine says, yeah, Christ died for all people, but you have to do your good works. And without your good works, without love forming faith, faith will never receive Jesus. The American Protestant might say one of two things, either that you have to make your decision for Jesus. That's more of the American evangelical mindset, right? You have to make your decision for Jesus. And that's why some people aren't saved because they never make their decision for Jesus. They never choose him into their heart. Uh, and he really wants to save them, but he can't because they didn't make their decision for him. Or you have others, the Calvinist theology is part of its doctrine and its for some of our hearers out there, they might have, uh, they might know what the tulip of Calvin's uh, theology is. The tulip, the acronym talking about total depravity and unconditional election and limited atonement. And there's the one I'm getting at is the L, limited atonement. Well, in that theology, then it says, well, Christ didn't actually die for all people. Christ died for all types of people, but not actually for everyone. And so he either died for you or he didn't. And if you're one of the ones who was sort of predestined for him not to die for you, well, then you're sort of, you know, sort of tough out of luck here. Well, that's not scriptural. The scriptures are very clear. Christ died for all people. But it still then raises the question, the American Christian mindset, well, wait a second, if Christ died for all people, then how come not everyone believes in Jesus? How come not everyone is going to heaven? And this is where Luther's comment is very helpful. God works through the word and the word works in various forms. The word spoken, the word written, uh, the word working through the sacraments, right? As one of the early church fathers says, the word makes the sacrament because whether it's working in written form, in oral form, wherever Christ is at work, it's always Christ's authority that makes these things work. So baptism works because it's the word of God attached to the water. Absolution works because it's the word of God attached to the official declaration of the forgiveness of sins. The sacrament of the altar works because it's the word of God that makes the sacrament and makes the bread and the wine host the body and blood of Jesus. So in all of these things, it's the power of the word. And yet the word works in different forms that we might know where to find Christ. And this is very comforting. Martin Luther at one point says, if I want the forgiveness of sins, I do not run to the cross. Jesus is no longer there. Nor do I run to the empty tomb because Christ is no longer there either. But if I want the forgiveness of sins, if I want to know where Christ is, I run to the word. And of course, with the word also then means the sacramental gifts that the word empowers. I run to the word because there is where Christ has promised to be. And this is why then you do have, sadly, some who are not saved, even though Christ died for all people, because some reject the word at work. Remember, we said at the top of the hour, you do not have to have these logical fallacies that argue that if I can reject it, therefore, I must also have to accept it. A gift is a gift. It cannot be accepted. 
It is not an invitation to a gift. It is a gift. Grace is grace. It is not the invitation to grace. It is grace. However, sadly, the sinner can reject grace and the sinner can reject the gift and the sinner can say, no, I don't want this truth that Jesus died for me. I don't want that cross applied to me 2,000 years later the way that God has promised to apply it to me. This is what Luther's getting at when he says that without the understanding of the word and the sacraments, one cannot be a Christian. And yet, because of these great gifts of word and sacraments, because of the means of grace, we can always hold fast to these and say, God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to work through specific means so that we can know where to find him at work for our salvation, to deliver the benefits of the cross to us 2,000 years later. Some American Christians don't like that, and they say, oh, you're putting God into a box. You're limiting God to work in ways that are so limited. Why can't he just work in any other ways? We're not the ones that are limiting him. He's the one who has promised to work in these ways. Now, think about this. I like to use an illustration with this to help people understand why we can speak so confidently about the idea that it's okay to say that God has limited himself in how he delivers the goods. Think of it as is very common out here in the Midwest. You live in uh, Southern Illinois. I live in uh, Northern Illinois and in both parts of Illinois. One of the most common features of all towns is a water tower, right? Everyone knows the town water tower. You got the name of the town on it. If you live in a big city like I do, you got more than one water tower. But anyway, you're always seeing these water towers all over the place. Think of how water towers were built. They were built in a very specific way to work in a very specific way. If I live across a busy street from a water tower in my house, and I say, you know what, I'm thirsty and I need to benefit from this water tower, I could, on the one hand, say, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to try and successfully navigate this busy road and I'm going to try to run across it, sort of like that old Frogger game and hope that I don't get run over by a car. And maybe if I'm skilled at this, maybe I will get across the street and I'll be able to run to the bottom of the water tower. Well, great. Even if you say that you can do that, even if you accomplish that, you get to the bottom of the water tower and you say, but it still doesn't benefit me. Now, what do I do? Do I have to climb up the side of the water tower and fall in, which is of course going to be of no benefit, but only harm and danger for me to fall into the water tower. That's not how the water tower was built. It was not built for you to come and take possession of it the way that you choose, just as the cross of Christ was not designed, if you will, for you to come and take possession of it the way that you choose. It's not for you to choose Jesus to be your Savior the way that you want him to be the Savior, but rather the cross has been designed and the salvation equation has been designed so that that which has been accomplished on the cross, God makes himself responsible to deliver to you. How does that water tower work? You don't run across the street and go find it but rather it has unseeable pipelines, right? And, and the whole system is designed so that all you do is turn your tap and out comes water. And if you have those great benefits flowing all the way from the water tower to you, then what joy is yours in saying, look at how easy this has been made, that all I have to do is trust that the water tower will work the way that it was designed to work and I get water in my home. In the same way then, Think of how Christ established his means of grace and think of when these were established. 
when, if you think about the hours of the cross and the days right around the cross, the night before his death, which really is when you think about it, according to Jewish time, the evening hours came first. So the evening hours of the day of his death, he's instituting the sacrament of the altar. Then the very night of his resurrection, he's instituting absolution, right? In the upper room, he says in the same upper room that he instituted the Lord's Supper, he now institutes absolution. And he says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. And then in the days following that, and before his ascension into heaven, he institutes baptism. In the whole context of Christ's death and resurrection, he's instituting the very means by which the goods of the cross can be hand-delivered even 2,000 years later to you, the individual hearer. And Christ has thought so much of you as the individual hearer that he has said, I'm not going to leave it to chance that they figure out how to make use of a cross from 2,000 years earlier. But rather, I'm designing, I'm instituting my entire system to run with these pipelines, these instruments, these means of grace, that the grace will come from the cross to them just as I have promised them, just as I have instituted it, so they know where I can be found. I can be found in the Word. I can be found in baptism. I can be found in absolution. I can be found in the sacrament of the altar. There need be no question or no doubt. Faith need not look to itself and say, do I know that I'm believing firmly enough? Do I know that I'm believing strongly enough? Can I convince myself I'm a Christian that Christ still thinks was worth dying for? Well, the reality to that, the answer to that is that none of us were worth dying for. If we were worth dying for, then grace is not grace. But Christ died for us because we were worth it, if that's what the person is going to argue. The reality is you weren't worth it which means no matter how strong your supposed faith is, it wasn't worth saving. But Christ, even though he knew he would benefit in no way from it, he nevertheless said, I'm going to save you. And I'm going to save you by atoning for your sins upon the cross, by being the sacrificial lamb upon the cross, and then by delivering the goods to you 2,000 years later, through my word and my sacraments, because I know that you will not have the strength or the ability to navigate those 2,000 years and make use of the cross, right? Think of all these people who have no use for the sacraments, no use for word and sacraments, and how they think that their pipeline to the cross is to take some sort of a pilgrimage through the Holy Lands. And they say, that's what makes me feel closer to Jesus. Now, I don't mean to speak negatively toward anyone who goes to the Holy Lands. I'm sure it's a wonderful tour to be able to see the very places where Christ walked. Great. But that doesn't actually bring the person any closer to Christ. I, as a baptized child of God, I, as one who benefits every Sunday from word and sacrament, I am far closer to Christ than one who thinks that he's going to get to Christ by walking through the Holy Lands. Because Christ is the one who says, here is how you stay close to me. Here is how I am yours, you are mine. Abide in me, I in you. And how does it come? It comes through word and sacraments. It comes through the means of grace. It comes through these pipelines that come from the water tower reservoir that is the cross and all of its righteousness, all the way to us 2,000 years removed. Jesus says, I have you in mind. And therefore, here are my gifts to you. Here is baptism. 
here is absolution. Here's the sacrament of the altar. Here is my proclaimed word. All of these things are going to give your heart reason to leap for joy. Faith is going to be created and sustained, and you are going to be kept in that one true faith unto life everlasting. This is then why we go from the first half of section one, from the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer to the second half. This is what Luther means when he says, without understanding the second half, without understanding that this is Christ's precious system of working in real time, right? These aren't just memorials of Christ's love. These aren't just ordinances by which you say, okay, if I jump through the hoops, then I can be promised Christ's love. These are the actual gifts by which Christ has said, here is how I am going to serve my people. Here is how I am going to bring to my church 2,000 years later the very benefits of the cross that I climbed and secured myself to, that they might know that I've died for them, that they might not only know it, but receive the benefits right there and then, even 2,000 years later, in whatever sanctuary you're in, at whatever altar you're kneeling at, there is Christ. And there is Christ serving you through these precious means of grace, those very instruments which bring grace to you and say, I am yours, you are mine, no one can ever snatch you out of my hand. That is very well said and laid out for us. A great overview. And one thing that I was thinking, especially as you were talking there at the end, you talked about how this theology distinguishes us from what you see in a lot of American Christianity. Of course, it distinguishes us from the Roman Catholics in a lot of ways too. But I think really in this way, that especially as we're coming out of COVID and considerations of churches closing down and things like that, this is one of the reasons that it was so hard for Lutherans to actually close their churches and why a lot of us did not, right? We may have taken on some different forms of smaller groups and things like that because we actually believe that Christ really is present there with us in his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, baptism, that he really does something there, namely forgives our sins and makes us children of God. It's not just simply something spiritual and disconnected from us. And so we've talked a lot about that on this show as we've gone through the Book of Concord. And once again, this highlights really well. This really distinguishes us. We don't just participate in some disconnected way, but this is an actual way that we are connected to. I like that image that you use there, connected to the water tower, the fountain that is Christ and his righteousness and those pipelines bringing it to us. And so that's where we're going to go ahead and pick up next week then as we get into one of those means of grace, a beautiful means of grace that we Lutherans just excel at so well in talking about its great importance for us and that is baptism. So that's where we're going next as we continue to progress our way through here on the catechized life and going through into the second section now of the small catechism, large catechism as well, and picking up with baptism and going forward then. So that's been our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. Thank you so much for your continual faithful teaching on our catechisms as we continue going through this series. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, Keep confessing, church.